Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Toomey, and I'm joined today by Eileen Yushatel. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we are here at RailsConf in Minneapolis, and uh, just yesterday you gave your talk on the past, present, and future of Rails at GitHub. Yep, I did. <laughs> it was uh, it was excellent. It was very interesting to hear about the history, and I think it was a, it was a very impassioned summary um, because you've done a lot of very difficult work in the past few years now trying to bring Rails at GitHub forward. So can you talk a little bit about what that adventure was like for you, what, what you were doing behind the scenes there? Yeah, uh, well, it was a year and a half or more of my tenure at GitHub, and I've been there two and a quarter years now. So that's the majority of it. Uh, it was a lot of work, and many times I wasn't sure we were going to finish it, mostly because it just felt like this mountain. It felt like pushing a rock up a mountain, where occasionally I had help, but most of the time I felt like the app is a mountain. Or the app is a rock. The app is a rock, or the so the. I don't know. One of, something in there is a rock, and something is a mountain, and neither of them are me. Neither of them wanted to move. Uh, so the thing that you were working on was uh, GitHub was working on a forked version of Rails, and do I remember correctly, it was also a forked version of Ruby at various points. Yeah, that was before my time. Luckily, they had fixed that. Okay. <laughs> before I started, uh, I think that Aaron did a lot of that work to get off the fork of Ruby. So. Uh, we saw some a couple weird things to deal with encoding. That's the reason we forked Ruby. Had to do with encoding stuff that we needed, or performance. I don't know. That I didn't do the research <laughs> reasons, on. There yeah. were reasons. Yeah. There's always reasons. Yeah, but by the time I started, we had already fixed that, and the three two upgrade was done, and it was just the four zero that hadn't really been committed to. It was kind of like, oh, I've got an hour on a Friday. I'll make a change. And the part I kind of skipped over in my talk was that when I started, it actually didn't boot at all. So we had to fix a couple things with booting. And it was actually one of the first things we found was a bug in Rails. <laughs> but we fixed that, and then it still was broken. So at this point now, am I correct in understanding that you're running roughly on Rails Master? We are not running Rails Master in production, but we have a dual build. So we run all of the code that goes into GitHub gets run on 5.2 and 6.0, or what's essentially master. And then... Now that we're on the RC, we're going to start test deploying it so that when Rails 6 is released, we can deploy that to production and merge that in. We can't be on master partially because of enterprise. Mm. We can't really have like unreleased versions running on that. It would actually make it more difficult than easier. So it's easier to wait until the release is done and say, okay, well, this is official release. And now we're on Rails 6. But it's a lot easier because we're not so far behind we do that. We bump the version of Rails every week. So anytime there's a code change that's being tested simultaneously on the actual production version that you're running, and then on whatever is Rails master at that yeah. point. Yeah. So basically, any test failure that gets introduced on GitHub master is the responsibility of the person who wrote the code that started failing. So we, that way, we can just focus on the Rails code going in to GitHub. So that's why we do the bump every week and then we fix all the failures and then we merge that to master on GitHub. So then everyone now has to write code that passes in that newest version of RHEL 6 and 5.2. All right. So you're constantly ratcheting up that line yeah. and making sure that no new code is breaking things and making that more difficult for the yeah. future. There was, like I said, there was a very impassioned nature to the talk and sort of the let this be a lesson to everyone that this is a dangerous path. What would be your advice to someone who's out there and maybe a senior dev on their team? It's like, oh, we're just going to do this. What are, what are the words that you have for that person to help them in the battle of please don't ever fork Rails or Ruby to go even further? I mean, like why you shouldn't do it? 
why you shouldn't do it, but also how do you like? I think there's a lot of clear answers to that, but how do you how do you fight that? How do you sell not doing it? I don't know. You, do you want to deal with what happens afterwards? I <laughs> I don't know. I, it's hard to sell that to someone because they think that oh, it's totally fine. It's easy. Like I'll maintain this, but you're not going to be there forever. Don't put that on other people. That's just rude. <laughs> <laughs> it is rude. And I think it's, uh, it seems easy, but some of the things that you highlighted in the talk were security is a really difficult one. If you yeah. get that far behind, then backporting security patches becomes a thing that you're doing. Congratulations. You now need to understand security inside and out. Yeah. And, and you know, a lot of the thing with forking is that you're taking on the responsibility of everything. And do you really have time for that? Uh, do you have time to fix bugs and add features and patch uh, security vulnerabilities? No, because you should be writing features, not maintaining your own custom fork of Rails. It's just one of those things that I think like seems simple, but if you really think about the cost of not just on yourself, on the organization, and then when you leave, how are they supposed to deal with that fork? When your job is not, it's kind of like the same thing where I talked about with how apps should be purely the code that makes your features work. It's kind of like your job should be purely what your job is. And if your job is not to maintain Rails, why are you going to fork it and maintain it? Indeed. Although, interestingly, uh, your job, well, maybe not your job, but your world is split somewhat in that you're on Rails core and you're on GitHub. And it sounds like there's a great, like, that works really well now. But I wonder, are there ever contentions in that? Do you ever have like two different hats and you have two different voices in your head telling you different things? Or does it just tend to those interests align very well? Well, I guess there's sometimes where I see something and I say, well, we need this, but clearly no one else does. And in those cases, what I try to do is like what I did with our automatic connection switching in GitHub is actually way more robust than what I added to Rails. But what I added to Rails was a layer that basically tells us how we're going to write those connection switching. So it's like really basic and really simple, but it's a little bit weird because it's almost like adding a monkey patch, but it's a blessed monkey patch because you basically write a middleware on top of our middleware and you can hook into that. And so that way for our app, we can do our weird stuff that no one else is gonna do, but we can use the same API. So basically what I try to do is make a really simple API that can apply to our app and everyone else's app, but then not add all the complexity that we have. We have other stuff where somebody wanted me to add something to Rails and I was like, actually that should probably just be a gem because what we're asking to do is really specific to our database setup and there's no way that I can get that into Rails because it doesn't make sense, right? We're not gonna put GitHub proprietary code in Rails. I mean, I don't know, maybe you would. <laughs> no, I don't think uh, the lawyers would like that. All right, probably not. No, that's uh, that's the secrets there. But I, I think that model for open source is a is a good one. I, there's a tiny bit of open source that I manage in the world, and that is sort of the defining question as to whether I accept new input. Is is this something that you could do in user land, or are the limitations of what I've exposed making it so that you just can't do the thing that you want to do? There's no hook for you to connect to. There's no aspect of the software that I've written that you can use. And so the idea, I, I didn't actually realize that there was that tiered nature where GitHub still has fancier database connection switching. Um, yeah. But I think that's a great model for how to do that. You know, it's one of those things where every time I looked at it, I was like, why is this so complex? I don't know how to put this into Rails. But it was like when you back it out and you look at, well, what's, what are the components of it? It's when to switch and how to switch. And so if you just add a way of how to switch and when to switch, then your how and when can be defined by your app. 
And so that's how I set it up. And we actually have more than one. So if you are in the API, we have one middleware that acts one way with a token that decides when to switch. If you're in the browser, it's using, it's switching on the HTTP verb based on a session cookie. So basically we, they do the same thing just with a different piece. When to switch is defined in the session or the token, the how to switch is defined in the HTTP verb or the whatever we use on the API. I don't know how to look at it. <laughs> so to, to back up and go to the higher level, the feature that we're describing here is the ability to have connections to multiple databases and then switch between them. Yeah, so when, when you should write and when you should read. Uh, if you write to the database, you don't want to read immediately from the replica because it might not be caught up yet. So we say, oh, okay, well, in Rails, it's, the default is two seconds, which we don't know what's going to work for your app. We don't know what your hardware is set up like. We don't know how fast your replicas can catch up. So you have to be responsible for figuring that out. But what we've added the basis is, of okay, well, the default is two seconds, but you can set it to whatever you want or however you want. So in our app, we have a circuit breaker that actually can read from the replica before that timeout is up. If something else occurred, I don't remember what, but... <laughs> but that's the logic that you've chosen at GitHub and that yeah. you can implement not in Rails code and doesn't need to be in Rails code, but can be GitHub specific or whatever the organization yeah, is. Yeah, so we can then, when once Rails 6 is out, we'll swap that out and we'll use the Rails 6 middleware, but we'll take all those definitions and put them in our middlewares that talk to the Rails 6 one. So that way we can simplify the code and it it's, can be special, but also default. Mm. Special default. I like that. Yeah. Bake in the special. The concept of having multiple databases is actually something that I haven't worked with too much. The, you were referring earlier to having a primary and then a, a read replica behind that, which certainly makes sense. Are there other use cases that you're seeing for the database switching, or is it primarily around that sort of performance consideration? And Well, we have 10 primaries that have different tables, and those have replicas, and we don't I didn't write any load balancing into Rails because we don't use load balancing. So a lot of the stuff that I write is, I already know it works. I'm not gonna invent some other wheel because like the whole idea of frameworks are extracted. They're not built. And so if I build something that I've never used, that doesn't benefit anybody because I don't know that it's gonna work. So while we might want dual writers or something, I don't know, whatever we want in Rails or we, I, right now it doesn't really support sharding because I've never done sharding. I don't want to implement something that I've never done because then I'm responsible for fixing this stuff that I don't even understand how it works in production because, I don't know, I did that with the HTTP2 uh, early hints. We're not using that in production and we wrote it in Rails and people ask me questions about it and it's like, I don't actually know. So I, I now I don't do that because I don't want to be responsible for the things that I don't use in production. So like sharding will probably come to Rails soon. It's just we need someone who has a better understanding of sharding to help implement that. But so right now it does automatic switching on the model if you're using multiple writers. So we have, like at GitHub, we have our MySQL, the original database, and then we've got a bunch of other ones that we add tables to, and none of them have the same tables. So they're like different, totally different databases that have their own model that tells it how to talk to the database. And then those all have replicas. And the load balancing is done by another app that we have called the GLB. It's Global Load Balancer. And that deals with, oh, well, how many replicas do we have? Where do I send the traffic? Our Rails app just says, am I writing or am I reading? And that's the automatic switching that we do, that we added to Rails. And that other routing and that logic, that lives in the GitHub layer. That's not something that Rails has implementation or support for. Uh, the load balancing layer is not in Rails. Okay. But the switching 
when to use uh, primary and when to use a replica is in Rails. Right, and that's the new feature. That's coming with 6.0, correct? Yeah. Very exciting. And it's always nice. Uh, one of the things that you highlighted was for you personally, getting back onto Rails, getting back onto Near Master, allows your work at the organization that you're at to actually pay forward and be able to upstream these sort of things, and that that's something that like drives you. Yep. Part of why our upgrades are hard is because we didn't upgrade. Being behind meant we were like, oh, let's invent multiple databases in our app, but Rails should have had it all along. You know, if we hadn't been behind, we could have done that, built it into Rails as we needed it, instead of like kind of hacking a bunch of weird stuff together. And that stuff, that tying your app to your framework or touching your framework's internals so that you can build something that the framework doesn't support makes upgrading harder because all of those internals could move. And why would you want someone else to implement that thing that you need so badly? <laughs> you know, so it makes sense for us to implement it. We use it in production. We've been using it for years. We know it works. So taking that out of our app makes a lot of our code less complex because we, the way we do our migrations with the multiple databases means they got like kind of hacky. So I actually did it differently in Rails than we do it in our app because it doesn't work. I mean, it works, but it does not work. Like, don't do it. Don't put all your migrations from multiple databases in the same folder. It's really bad. Noted. It doesn't work. Because uh, migrations cache the connection when they start running, so you can't switch connections in a migration. So then if you touch multiple tables in a migration, you have to then break up those migrations after the fact if you're going to move them to different tables. And editing migrations really sucks. It does. Now we just delete them. <laughs> Are you just running behind and you have one like DB schema dump that is the base and then migrations that build on that? Yeah, and then it will dump to the new one. So we have an initial schema that's everything up until the next migrations, and then that's how we do it. I remember for a long time, I just had like a moral resistance to that. It's like, no, 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 we need to know the exact path. We need to know the full history of every migration. And then I realized, like, I don't know, I never look back at that. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I never need to Git roll back that. It does. That's true. Uh, Git's a wonderful tool. Uh, a big fan. So obviously connecting to multiple databases was one of the things that was in the fork. Were there other things? Are there other pieces now that you've unwound and you're back on Rails Master? Did you have to re-implement a bunch of other things? Or? Well, I don't know the if other thing is, them, is that we also like reinvented things that exist in Rails. So because we were behind, we, we wrote a job queue it's like, oh, Rails has active job. Why are we going to write our own job queue? But it didn't have it at the time. So that's like an example of something that we invented at the same time as Rails did. And it's kind of like, for me, the thing is I want to do less work. Like if anyone just saw Justin's talk, it's about being like a selfish programmer. And it, it was kind of spoke to me because it's kind of the things that I like to do. Like I don't want to invent stuff that is going to make my life harder later. I want to work with other companies. Uh, now that we're on Rails Master and Shopify's on Rails Master, we can talk about, okay, well, what is it in our app that we both need that we can do better? Uh, they do sharding, so maybe it makes sense for them to implement sharding. But now we have the basis for how is this even going to work? What's the API? I know that they have a fork of rescue like we do. <laughs> so maybe we can work together to get off those forks. And it's kind of like the ideal open source world where you're not just working, like pushing stuff out so that your app is less complex. You're working with other companies to make something even better. There's a really good book called The Success of Open Source, and it talks about how like the early days of computers and inventing the BIOS and all that other stuff and how companies work together to build this stuff because no one company could accomplish it on their own. And it was like they just 
all work together. And it was one of those kind of amazing things that we need to do more of. Indeed. Yeah. Rails stands out to me as a, a framework that really takes to heart providing those foundations, providing those core primitives that many or most applications will need. And I love the theme that you sort of repeated throughout the talk of, I want to focus on the stuff that makes GitHub unique. I want to focus on the stuff that matters to us and not on building a job queue or a mailer or things like that and not having to maintain that code yourself. Yeah. And, you know, all companies have competitors. And wouldn't it be better to just be like, oh, I don't ever have to worry about if I'm going to break my database, because what you should be worrying about is, do I have features that are cool that my users want? But if we're so busy being like, oh, let's invent our own job queue, but you know, it's kind of a waste of time in a way, and a waste of money. Uh, <laughs> and that's not really like I don't want to be like, oh, GitHub, we wrote our own job queue. That's bad because at that time, that's what we needed. So yeah, you're going to watch my talk and be like, yeah, but my life isn't like that, and that's true because hindsight is 2020 and I don't know what you're all doing in your apps that you might regret later and it's easy for me to say oh we regret this but I don't think that it's necessarily like we can say oh we shouldn't have written that it's just that now that we're on Rails Master we can say okay we don't need that so like get rid of it take it out delete it well not delete it we have to migrate it to active job but we're doing that so then eventually delete hundreds and thousands of lines of code we don't have to be like how does jobs queues work because Rails works so we don't have to test that. We don't have to test infrastructure on top of testing an application. So it improves that experience too and how fast things can get done. For me, watching the talk, I, I was definitely nodding along and saying like, this is all, this feels familiar. Uh, I spent a lot of time at organizations and either in the wake of decisions like forking a version or building their own, often it's building their own rather than forking is the thing that I see. And it's something that I push back on with, I try to approach a similar level of passion as to what you brought to the talk. But I feel like they're similar ideas of like, you know what, we'll just do our own. We'll just do our own thing. Our our needs are that special. And I think that's always been a theme in Rails is you're actually not that special. Like you're, yeah. you're somewhat special, but make sure you focus on the parts that really are special. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think it can be easy to look at your situation and say, oh, well, no one else has experienced this before. But if you can categorize your problem, you'll notice that maybe we're not that special or maybe we don't actually need that feature that we th that we think is the reason that we're rewriting our own job queue and i think that's one of the things that rails has gotten better at is allowing you to like add on top of something like just like the way i wrote the api for connection switching add on top of it do whatever you want in your app that's the part that can be special because i don't know your infrastructure but what i do know is that you need to switch connections and so rails can take on small parts of the problem and let you add on top kind of like Rails doesn't really take on authentication beyond has secure password. So you can add device on top, but you don't have to. Yeah, and it provides the primitives that are necessary access to session yeah. or cookies or, or all of those different things. Uh, but I really like that idea of, of trying to keep the framework focused on enabling technologies. Although I think Rails also then does a great job of providing a default out of the box. Like if you don't even want to think about this at all, it will just work. But then when you're ready, be able to lean in and actually start to tweak things and change things. And that's a very hard line to walk. So as someone who receives the benefits of a lot of your work, thank you. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it is fun to be in the Rails community. And I spend a lot of time between different frameworks and things. And I still come home to Rails. That's what it feels like is such care and thought has been put into this framework to enable me to focus on the app, the thing that matters, the thing that clients care about it or customers care about at the end of the day. Yeah. And I think that that sometimes can get lost in other frameworks. I mean, I don't, I've never worked on other frameworks, but I can imagine that if you, if you end up only working on your framework and you aren't working on an app that uses your framework, you could get lost in that. 
and just be like, well, I think it needs this feature. But I think that the beauty of Rails of how we focus on extractions rather than building things is saying, oh, I've built this same thing six times, so it's time to get it out and into Rails. And that realization that you don't have to build that thing another time, that you can put it into Rails so that so that everyone else can benefit from it. I think that that's what makes Rails special is that so many of the people on the core team are there because they are working on an app and they want to put stuff into Rails from their apps to make their lives and their coworkers' lives easier. Yeah, that policy of, of trying to upstream things. And as a developer, I, I like to write code. It's fun. But I also, when I'm thinking in sort of a product-centric mindset, I actually want as little code as possible. As little code as necessary to get the job done. But anything that I can push off my plate, that I can push to a framework, is uh, that's great for me. I don't have to test that. Like you said, I trust that that is being managed by the folks on the Rails core team. And and frankly, probably better than I could do. Yeah, and you know, it makes your test faster, too, because you don't have to test your framework. Which, you know, that's the dream. Speed and iteration and all of that. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Indeed Prime. On Indeed Prime, top tech companies apply to you with jobs you'll love. One free application and connect to thousands of companies in over 90 cities. Companies like Twilio, Overstock, Sling, WP Engine, PayPal, VRBO, and more. Skip endless resumes, get matched to employers based on skills, experience, and your salary goals. Get access to one-on-one -on -one technical career coaching, including resume reviews, mock interviews, and salary negotiation tips. So whether you're hiring or looking, meet your match on Indeed Prime. Join now by going to www.indeedprime.com thoughtbot. One of the topics that you hinted at at the end was there are all of these reasons, security, et cetera, et cetera, that we want to avoid forking rails or, or having these complications. But then you hinted at one of the main reasons, which is microservices and avoiding them. So I'm interested, actually, what the shape of GitHub is today. Like You were talking about some of the distribution of the data model, but is GitHub still primarily a rails monolith? Is it starting to break apart? It's a big enough organization that I would imagine some stuff's happening. But Yeah, it's a, it's a large rails monolith. We have some services, and we have for a while. There's definitely frustration with a few of the things that we have, like RCI is not super fast and can be kind of flaky sometimes, and our deploys also take a while. Sometimes it's like, well, I don't have time for this. I just, I'm just going to build my own thing. And I get that motivation. But I also think that part of the problem was we were on such an old version of Rails that everyone was just frustrated with, I don't know how to write code for this version of Rails. Like, it's slow. I can't fix it. I have to monkey patch it or add to the fork. And that made development slower and more painful. And so the microservices thing is a little bit of a joke. I mean, that's what everyone's talking about in the industry. So mm -hmm. it's not a joke in that way, but it's a joke in that, okay, I love monoliths. Okay, so I'm, like saying, like I'm not going to thing to say. Like, I'm going to stand up and say this now. I don't think that microservices are bad if that's how you built your organization, but I don't think that they are the answer to the problems that a lot of companies have. If your problem is you don't have ownership, adding microservices isn't going to fix that problem. That's a culture problem. And so I think that the thing that I'm making fun of is trying to solve culture problems with technical solutions that aren't going to make your problems go away. Like I was talking to someone who has works in microservices and they're like, oh yeah, our deploys went from taking 30 minutes to two hours <laughs> because they have to wait for all the tests to test all of the services that work together. And I just thought that was kind of funny because, you know, it was just one of the things that had been tossed around for like, can we make GitHub deploys faster if we extract these things? But every time we measured it wasn't going to make it faster. 
there are things that don't belong in our Rails app, 100%. And I have a list of them, and I talk about them a lot internally. <laughs> and the, Can you of, not talk about them externally? No, it's just, it is not interesting to anyone here, because you'd have to know what they are, right, what they yep. do. It's just things like, oh, why is this thing in here? This <laughs> does not belong in a Rails app. And those are the things that we're starting to extract. And I think the way that I like to do work on a large monolith and figuring out what doesn't belong there is saying, well, these two things are really obvious. So work on getting those out while we continue making the app healthy. So the way that a lot of the work that we're doing is looking at the app and saying, oh, uh, this is not vanilla Rails style. Like we had a code that basically was recreating active record enums. So we got rid of that and now we use active record enums everywhere. Same code, does the same thing, but we were able to delete a lot of code for that. So that's like one really kind of minor thing that we did our test framework is really custom, so like trying to get that closer to vanilla Rails, all of those things that we do is going to make it really obvious what doesn't belong in the app. Whereas if you, I think a lot of times companies will be like, oh, I'm going to make arbitrary lines of ownership in here, cut this out and cut this out and cut this out. And then you were like, well, actually these two things were related and it wasn't obvious because our app was a mess. But now it's obvious that I, because we took them out. It's interesting, that argument for... I think both the idea of like staying on current versions, but also just general code cleanliness and trying to pull away the parts that aren't unique to your application such that then you can see the picture more clearly. Yeah. The thing is, I think a lot of times it's like, oh, let's solve this with microservices. But really, if you look at it, we can say, oh, let's solve this by just putting it in Rails and deleting it. Mm. Great. Okay. This complexity is now gone and we don't have to worry about it. There's other teams doing other things to the app to like fix it and make it better. Our team is mostly focused on extraction and replacement. So replacing our queue with active job, action job. It's hard to know. Action queue. That's what we should call it. Uh, active job. <laughs> <laughs> replacing it with active job. That's one step of improving the app because we're saying, like, this doesn't belong here. We don't need our own job queue. So while that's not a service, it's a way to make the monolith healthier. And I think that, like, because it was so far behind, it wasn't really loved the way it needed to be. And I don't know if everyone else can feel this, but I feel like it's easier to reason about the code base now than it was two years ago. I mean, I've also been in GitHub for two years, so maybe I just have it all in my head. But that I actually- That is a slow I, uh, growth in your knowledge of, yeah. but I, I would imagine considering everything that you're describing, if you're moving off of custom variants and if it's new people that are joining the team, like, yeah, I'm gonna work on Rails at GitHub. What is this? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot yeah. less like, oh, where did, what? But uh, I Google searched this and nothing came up. So, oh, yes, let me tell you the story of where this came from. I feel there's less of that. And I think that, that that's a really good thing because I want our engineers to be self-sufficient in the things that they should be self-sufficient in. If it's Rails, you should be able to Google search how to do all of it without asking anyone, what is this? And so eliminating that question is so important to productivity because then you are also not relying on this tribal knowledge. It's not like we have proprietary software. I mean, GitHub is proprietary, but it's not like we have our own proprietary framework. I think that like MailChimp has their own framework or something internally. Mm -hmm. And so like you can't learn that. Uh, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just if you're using Rails, you should be able to Google search the majority of your application's implementation. And if you can't, then those are the things that you need to decide whether or not they're actually necessary to how your application functions.
Yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think the microservices thing, it, Rails is a community that seems to be resisting it much more strongly than others, which is one of the things that I like about the Rails community, because everything that you were saying about being considered in the decision, like the reasons that are often stated for like, well, you know, our team's having a lot of trouble. We have people kind of stepping all over each other. Like, I think there are different ways to solve that within a code base, better lines of separation first within the code base, and then maybe extract after that, but not initially. Like starting from a microservices architecture is something that that surprises me that that's a take that we have now, but. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's easy to react to something on the opposite end of the spectrum. It's a lot harder to say, okay, well, what about this is good? And so if we can look at why folks like microservices, maybe we can say, okay, yeah, for this particular thing, a service makes a lot of sense. It doesn't need to talk to the Rails app. It doesn't need to talk to the Rails databases. It does this thing, like we have a service that uploads avatars I was going to say image services are like my canonical one of handling image magic and doing all of that sort of stuff. Like, all right, fine, yeah. let's take that out of ban from the Rails process. Yeah, well, that's written in Go. So, I mean, it makes oh, that also makes it make sense to be a separate process. It needs to be fast. It does other stuff with the caching layer and Fastly that I don't know anything about. But and we also have our own um, web sockets, and we did research to see if we could replace them with Action Cable, and ours is actually faster. So there's so that's a case where you're like, well, we have this service. Like, does this really need to be a service because Rails does this for us? Oh, well, it's actually a lot faster. We put a lot of time into the performance of it long before I was there. Okay, great. That makes sense. I can close this issue. We're not going to use Action Cable, but we at least know why, mm -hmm. right? And so I don't, I don't like when we have stuff where we're like, well, well why do we do this? And then nobody has an answer. And that's true of any company, you know, someone has tribal knowledge of, oh, well, I wanted to try Go, so I wrote this service. Well, maybe that's not the best service for it. And Go has very specific purposes that it's really good for. But if you're making like a front end Rails app that's got like issues and comments, I don't know that that's the right move. Like Rails just works for that. So it's one of those things where it's picking the right tool for the job and microservices doesn't solve that problem either. No, no, indeed. Oh, but the only thing worse than microservices is multiple monoliths. Just make one. <laughs> multiple monoliths. What does that even... Oh, you've got like a company that's got like 17 Rails apps. That sucks. Mm, I worked with a company at one point and we were able to convince them to fold them back into one, which was in and of... I thought that was going to be more straightforward. And it turns out it took like six months to fold these different applications back together. And that I've taken with me in when people will start the conversation, like, oh, we'll go to microservices, and you know, if it's bad, we'll just fold it back in. Like, no, 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 it turns out that's not a thing. That's not as easy as you think it is. Yeah, especially if you rewrote it in another language. And mm -hmm. I think that's the other thing, like, you think, oh, okay, well, this app has all these mistakes. So what if I just made a new one? Well, that app also, maybe it has those mistakes because the person who wrote it wasn't that familiar with the language. So if you're going to do that same thing with a new language, you're going to have different problems, but I don't know that it's going to be better. Yeah, and that's not saying it's never going to be better. It's just, again, it's don't solve culture problems with a technical solution. And so many things are culture or people problems and not technical problems at the end of the day. Like DHH made a very um, sort of small flippant comment about, and obviously it doesn't scale. And that historical thing about Rails doesn't scale. We can't do that. Can't possibly run a GitHub on Rails. Turns yeah. out you can. Well, you're doing it for what, 12 years? That seems to be going fine for all of you at GitHub. Yeah. <laughs> it seems to be going all right. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, sometimes we have incidents and whatever, but any application does. And sometimes it's user error. There's nothing to do with the app. Uh, user error meaning like you write a bug into an app mm -hmm. and it takes it down. Or, you know, 
whole database incident. <laughs> Poor things, you know, stuff yeah, happens. Things. I mean, it just, yeah, stuff happens. Something gets misconfigured, mm-hmm. you know. There uh, was that day S3 fell over and then the entire internet went with it. Yeah. And that was just human error at the command line. Yeah, or that day that, what, the DNS hacking, DDoS, a few years ago. That was special. That was, uh, <laughs> that was targeted at GitHub? That was the one where they used the Internet of Things devices to attack the DNS and to take down, like, all of the Internet. Oh, take down the DNS servers yeah. themselves? Oh, I don't, know if I, I don't know how, but I think I missed that day. I don't know how you missed that either because it was literally every <laughs> website went down. I must have experienced it, but now there's just sort of a catalog of these times that the Internet broke. And then yeah. it turns out the Internet is just a series of tubes and uh, sharks sometimes bite them under the ocean and you have to wrap them in Kevlar and just weird, weird things. Yeah, that was more than two years ago because I was still at base camp when that happened. But yeah, it was one of those things where you wake up and you and you get online and you're like, the internet's broken. I actually called Time Warner and I was like, hey, the internet's broken. And they're like, no, it's fine. And that's when I realized <laughs> I like used a VPN to route myself to the West Coast. And I was like, oh, this is a DNS issue. And I actually told Time Warner about it. I was like, hey, by the way, there's a big deal happening on the internet right now. You should know. <laughs> you should be uh, at least aware that this is happening. Yeah, that was really fun. I and mean, that's one of those things where it was kind of like everyone's like, eh, this site is down. It's like, nope, all the sites are down. Just all go outside. The, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the internet is done for the day. We're going to just, uh, I don't know, go see the sun. I hear yeah. good things about it. Well, I, I mentioned early on that you are a Rails core member, and that's part of the work that you're doing is on that. How did you get into that? How did you start doing that? This is one of my favorite stories because it, it's like, I think everyone's heard it, but people really like it. So basically, I gave my first talk at Mountain West Ruby in uh, 2014, I think, and Aaron Patterson was there. And uh, I had found a bug in Active Record, but I didn't realize it was a bug. I was like, this is just weird. So basically... If you did a delete all, that's supposed to be faster than a destroy all. But if you have a lot of records, it actually was creating this gigantic in statement that it didn't need to. So it could have just deleted on the foreign key, but instead it was loading up all of the primary keys for the records it was trying to delete in an in statement. So if you had 100,000 records, you could take your database down with this bug. And because in tests in Rails, you're only testing one or two records, it's not obvious that there's a performance issue. But basically, yeah, so I found this bug, but I didn't realize it was a bug. And I was like, hey, listen to this like really funny thing in my talk. Like, oh, don't delete stuff this way because this will happen. So you should delete it this way. And Aaron was like, he raises his hand at the end and he asks a non-question question of why don't they fix that? (laughs) Which he is the they in this case, right? Yeah, and I said, I don't know. Why don't they? (laughs) And so then after that, we paired on fixing that bug. And so then... Since then, once a week, we pair on rail stuff. Fun. So it's been like, what, four or five years and we still do the same thing? So That is a long-standing pair. Yeah. I like the idea of that continuity of pairing as well. I, I can't think of anyone that like I pair on and off with people often, but I've never had like my pairing buddy that we've grown together and that we've fought some battles and... And yeah. now you're both at GitHub, which makes that even easier, I assume. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, instead of being like, oh, let me complain about this work problem, we're like, all right, let's work on this work problem. <laughs> so you never have to worry about sharing proprietary code mm. or anything. But most of the time we pair on rel stuff or Ruby stuff. But I don't really know C that well, so it's mostly being like, what if you did this? And not really knowing what I'm talking about, but sometimes it can still help to talk to someone besides like your dog or your cat about your problem. Or talk to your dog or your cat. Yeah, but they don't just, they don't really help. They just stare at you. 
They do, but I've found like, uh, I don't actually have a dog or a cat, but the general just saying out loud the thing <laughs> is sometimes helpful for me. Yeah, and then yeah. having someone who can actually reflect it back, even if they don't know the language or framework, that's another tier. And then Aaron Patterson, I think, is a really great way to pair because then yeah. you've got Aaron Patterson. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes I'm, you know, it's me asking the questions and helping him work through stuff. But it's a good thing to have someone that you can work with, that you work on hard problems where you both can feel like, oh, it's fine if we ask questions because this is a safe space. <laughs> so in the humorous take on how you got into open source, it's pretty easy. You just give a talk. Aaron Patterson then pairs with you for the next four years and ta-da. Yeah, uh, easy. <laughs> but the, the, I think, more serious takeaway is like the willingness to be wrong, the yeah. having a comfort with that, having a comfort standing up in front of a room and saying, like, here's this thing that I found. And I know for me, I often was very much like, I'm sure it's me and I'm dumb and I did the wrong thing, but this is weird, right? And just being willing to say that and being willing to do that in public, I imagine, is, is part of the, the sort of underlying story there. And the way I thought when I first found it was, well, hundreds of people work on Rails, so there's no way I found a bug. I couldn't possibly be special enough to have found a real bug. Yeah. Turns out they're everywhere. Yeah, they are. <laughs> they are really everywhere. And when everyone asks me, like, well, how, how do I like, contribute to Rails? I always tell them the same thing. Upgrade your app. Mm. You are going to find all of the weird bugs when you upgrade and contributing to rails is way easier if you have a real problem in your real app and you find that real problem like we found a really weird after commit bug that if it had gone into the final version i'm sure we would have had people reporting it or they might not it took us like three engineers and like 12 hours to reproduce it Mm, those are the worst. Yeah. Just to get to the reproduction. Yeah, yeah. Like we could reproduce it in our test, but we didn't know what combination of events it was. And it was like a has many that has a lambda and a dependent destroy on a model with an after commit. And then that model that it is associated with has an after destroy that updates the parent. The after commit callbacks will not be called. Yes, that's very specific. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I followed all of it, but I think the yeah, point no, is I mean, just like... If you some... didn't follow it, it's totally fine yeah. because even explaining it is crazy to me. Uh, I just It's very difficult to think that through even after having put the pieces together. But that's the kind of bug that the Rails test didn't find. No one else has reported it yet because I don't think a lot of other apps are using the RC yet. Mm. And it would have gone into Rails 6 because Basecamp and Shopify both didn't hit it. So that's the kind of thing. You have weird stuff in your app which, you know, you probably should get rid of. But if you're not going to get rid of it, at least find the Rails bug so that someone else doesn't hit it. And that's like, that's the easiest way to contribute is to be on a new version and test it because we don't have everything tested in Rails. I mean, there's weird patterns and apps everywhere. I mean, it's probably a bad pattern for us to an after destroy to update a parent that has an after commit on destroy. But it worked before. <laughs> not so easy to say, though, so... <laughs> It worked before, so it has to keep working unless we decide it's actually supposed to be broken. But that was one of the things where I was like, even if this is the behavior that you want, we cannot release this because it's too weird of a combination for someone to figure out. And I don't want anyone else losing as many hours as we did on this bug. I'm consistently amazed by both languages and frameworks and having to support them moving forward and be able to make forward progress and add features and ideally improve performance over time, but also not break things for people in the past. And in contrast to application development, where you're like, all right, no, that, that, we just changed things. We don't, that's no longer true. This is no longer true. We can just throw away entire sections of code. It is amazing to me that these things keep working, that they work at all. Uh, and yeah. they work extremely well in most cases. Like Active Record is an amazing feat of engineering that is so complicated and has to handle all of those edge cases unless you want to explicitly break people's apps, which 
you try not to. And again, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I think we do a better job of that now. We're a bit more committed to compatibility. I mean, I wasn't there in the beginning, but I feel like Rails was young enough that it could move fast enough that it didn't matter as much, but mm. now it matters a lot. And I mean, you can just claim that it aligns perfectly with your time on Rails Core. Yeah, and it's, you, it's you all me. Yeah, yeah. I did it. I did it. <laughs> uh, well, Eileen, with that, I think we have probably uh, wrapped up the things we want to talk about today. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And where can folks mine more of your work on the internet? Uh, you can find me anywhere at Eileen Codes. All right. And we will have links to uh, a couple of variants of that, probably GitHub and Twitter at a minimum. Uh, but thanks again. Great. Thank you. This is a whole thing. Whoa, you were here the whole time? Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed, or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to Indeed Prime for sponsoring this episode. We'll see you next week. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.